Hi, I'm Kieran Therrigan, author of The Seven Essential Stories Charismatic Leaders Tell, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Kurian Therakin. Kurian Matthew Therakin is the founder of the sales and marketing strategy firm, Strategy Peak Sales and Marketing Advisors. He's consulted for companies in professional services, financial services, manufacturing, and technology. Prior to Strategy Peak, he was a vice president of sales and marketing for an Alberta-based enterprise software firm where his team achieved success with multiple Fortune 500 clients. Kurian lives in Edmonton, Alberta, and is here to talk about his book, The Seven Essential Stories Charismatic Leaders Tell. Welcome, Kurian. Thanks for having me on your show, Bill. It's great to have you here. Tell me, when you were growing up, who's somebody who influenced or inspired you? My ultimate business hero, I refer to him often, is Steve Jobs. Even though I only saw him speak once when I was a very young man here in Edmonton. He actually came up to Edmonton to speak at an Apple event. This idea of this individual who created seven different industries, but was actually thrown out of his first company, spent 10 years in the wilderness only to come back and reinvent the company that he was thrown out of, where it is the the most valuable company on earth today is an amazing story. The transformation of seven different industries as well, and what he had to do himself in his own personal spiritual transformation, let alone strategy, that's what inspires me. His is a big story and covers a lot of different areas. What I'm curious about is after hearing him speak and having that experience of him telling you stories directly, what is an example of a time when you may have made a decision differently or had a conversation with somebody at work differently because of the influence of Steve Jobs? I think this happens on a regular basis. The problem that is in front of you is rarely the problem that needs to be solved. I do a lot of blogging and such. In fact, I just wrote a blog on the weekend. And I think this is the whole ethos of Jobs is that he reinvented things. Innovation is one thing. Reinvention of product categories is completely a different thing. No one had a retail store prior to Apple in the sense of getting the consumer products out there in one category, in one manufacturer, and all these kind of things, whether it's the iPad, iPod, etc. Now, what you're referring to also is that he never accepted assumptions. People would say, you, you need to have ADB ports. You need to make sure that you sell people different devices. He says, no, we can enter he can't come up with something with glass that's strong in an iPod or an iPhone. He goes, maybe not, but we'll invent it. He would always be able to look beyond whatever the obstacles were that prevented others from taking those steps. I think that's the central characteristic of his ethos. And that is he never accepted the current status. And it was about reinvention. I wrote a blog post actually this weekend about Eli Lilly. And Eli Lilly back in the, I believe the late 90s was facing a problem. They had so many different drug discovery opportunities in front of them, but did not have the money to hire all the PhDs and the research staff to pursue all the opportunities in front of them. Now, a first-year MBA class may look at this. Obviously, this is a finance problem, but Eli Lilly's research director said, you know what? This is really not a finance problem. Funding this 
rapid upstarts of uh, new R&D efforts. No, actually, the problem is how do we discover ways to new drugs and ways to bring it to market? That is the real problem. It's not a funding problem. So they put up a site called Innocentive. The Innocentive now has 500,000 problem solvers all throughout the world that are responding to challenges that the Innocentive team puts out. Now you are tapping into the worldwide brain and then allowing those people to come in and solve your problems for you. Then there's, of course, intellectual property rights that are granted and all this, but no one is funding, you know, $100 million drug efforts, let alone $2 billion to bring it. So what you're saying is that Eli Lilly adopted the idea of Kickstarter for financial fundraising as incentive for innovation idea raising to be able to bring those ideas and insights, experiences, and resources into an online community that would help it solve problems and have a greater impact. Idea crowdsourcing, baby. That's what it was. That was a very revolutionary idea in 1998. The World Wide Web was just basically starting out and such. This was a huge idea in the cloud. And this is probably the very first crowdsourcing attempt out there. And it worked spectacularly well. So at what point in your life, Kieran, did you realize the power of narrative, the power of story in order to help people make changes or just to lift yourself into a different trajectory? This is a little embarrassing to say, but it was actually a fairly recent discovery. I think I've always been a good salesperson. Back when I was 10, and 11 years old, my teachers were saying, you're a good salesperson. I didn't even know what that really meant at that point in time. But as I was writing the book and such, it was the culmination of the previous 10 years. That is, you have this big idea and you have the key messages and you have the strategic narratives that you would put into place to drive forward a marketing. That's what it was. Wow, look at this. The story is the very first thing you sell. In fact, it's the only thing you sell because people buy into your story. They want to possess the product that you are delivering because the story makes it come alive. Once it comes alive, you have to satisfy that void by getting that product purchased. The story is absolutely the very first thing you sell, but no one transacts cash for it. That's the interesting part. Yet there are often companies that suffer because they have a crummy story. In fact, I put out a quote of the week every week, and one of my lines is simply, companies don't die first. Their stories die first. In my book, there's the iteration of the 1955. Fortune 500 list. And something like 80% of that list was not in place there, I think by 1990 or 2000 or something. Jim Collins wrote all about that in Good to Great. This whole idea is why did these companies die? You can say it's strategy, and that's probably true, but there's a core element of that strategy, and that is that the story failed to keep up with the times, failed to be functionally relevant, emotionally significant as strategic drift. The markets are in constant flux, moving away from whatever you're doing today. Even Apple, its products of 20 years ago are laughable today, but they were revolutionary for the time. Apple has to continually reinvent itself. So does 3M, so does DuPont, and so do every one of your audience members to stay relevant and emotionally significant in their clients. In your book about the seven stories that charismatic leaders tell, you write about Alfred Nobel, who founded his prize because he was mistaken for dead. How about that for a reinvention story? Can you share that story and, and how 
how that changed his life and what he committed to. So Alfred Nobel was living in Paris at the time. I forget exactly which year it was. He opened up the paper in Paris. And this is according to the story. And he was absolutely shocked to read his obituary. It was a two-paragraph, three-paragraph obituary. Basically said that the merchant of death is dead. Alfred Nobel, who found more ways to kill more people than anybody else. He had prolific patents in armaments and explosive. Dynamite being the big one, being the big boom, dynamite. Blockbuster product. That was the blockbuster product. He had so many patents in this, but ultimately he was shocked that this would be his legacy. He eventually worked his way to the point where he left the vast majority of his estate to the founding of the Nobel Prizes, of which one of the preeminent ones was the Nobel Prize for Peace and for whoever advanced the most in ensuring peace for all humankind was him taking responsibility for engineering his own legacy because that's the last thing he wanted to be known as the merchant of death. I spoke with many listeners and did some research prior to our call. One of the questions that people asked was, does somebody need to be charismatic in order to tell effective stories or is telling the effective stories a way to increase their charisma? That's a bang on insight because as I explain it to people right now in a promotion piece I do with the book, I list people like Jobs and Musk and Roosevelt. And there's all sorts of people, Churchill, all sorts of people that do this. And they are charismatic. But you know what? I can teach anybody to become more charismatic through the power of narrative. If you believe that story and it is insightful in how it inspires you and drives you forward, you're going to become charismatic in the process of telling that story, just in the belief and the way that it's done. That's right. Because the first person you have to convince in any sale, including a story, is yourself. Is yourself. People can quickly sniff out whether you don't believe what you're saying, right? But people are really looking for the conviction of the undertone and the way you comport yourself and the way you say things. When those things come out, the belief goes into the narrative that you tell in your audiences. So it's belief, it's conviction, it's relevance relevancy, and it's fit with the the market. You work with a lot of different clients in a lot of different industries. Can you share an example of someone who didn't have an effective story and through the use of story, maybe not the only intervention or tool or strategy that you offered, but story was a, a key part of helping them resurrect or lift to a higher level of success because of enriching and revitalizing their story. A few years back, I was working for Dave, the CEO of a small 20-person consulting firm. Dave was in the process of floundering, (laughs) absolutely floundering. He was making money. He was making several hundred thousand dollars for himself in the process, but the clients wouldn't stick around. So he could sell up a storm, but the clients wouldn't stick around. So he's in this hamster wheel of constantly having to replace the classic leaky bucket. There's product market fit in the story, but the deliverables were not aligned what they thought they were buying. So the clients would always leave, a process is always replaced his own people, all those kind of things. So this consulting firm, he is killing himself literally to keep the business alive because now you are at a 20 person and most entrepreneurs don't know when they start a company, they're actually giving birth to a little baby dragon whose favorite food is cash. And that cash isn't coming. It will eat you in the process, right? So you have to get to a, a point where the cash is coming because you have critical mass and you're delivering high value and clients stick around and your people love what 
what they're doing and all that kind of stuff, you finally have a sustainable business. He did not have that. I looked at him and I'm trying to analyze what's going wrong here. And he had mentioned to me, he had written what the genesis of this company was all about 10 years earlier. So I said, Dave, where is that? He looked around for it and he still had it. It was a one pager. I read that one pager and it was the most cogent, succinct description of what he wanted this company to be and the value that he wanted to deliver to the client. I looked at him and I looked at the company and they completely didn't even look alike. So he's caught in this hamster wheel of trying to keep a business running because otherwise he's got personal guarantees on the line, all this kind of stuff. But the company had no similarity to what he had originally written. What we ended up doing, quite literally, This is very painful, but it was necessary. We had no choice but to blow the company up. His partners went separate ways and we restarted the firm based on the DNA that he originally wanted to install in the business. It's a completely different business now. We're only attracting clients that we can deliver high value work for. We are only hiring people that can do the work that we are promising. There's a lot of different aspects to that, but ultimately we are true to the original inspiration for why he wanted to start the company. One of the things that jumped out at me is in the earlier iteration of the company, you said that clients weren't sticking around. So there was no lifetime value. That's where your profits come from. How is the client retention now in this firm? Did he change industries? What industry is he in now? He was in the sales and marketing consulting business, believe it or not, but very specific aspect of that. I don't want to give too much away there. His sales and marketing consulting business for anybody and their dog that would show up. So it's very tough to build an institutional knowledge within his own firm to how to do it for the next client, the next client. So anybody would show up as long as they had a check, we're going to do work for them. Now, what we did instead now is we looked through all of their clients that they had done work for. We stood out just stellarly on these two or three categories, and we did very poor on other ones. So we said, okay, in this next iteration of this firm, we're only going to take one of those categories. Then we added the second category, right? We're about to add the third category now, but those are the only categories we do business in. When we see the retention rates in that, the new company is only a couple of years old, but the retention rate are night and day difference than before, where clients would leave after three months, four months. We have a year and a half type of retention now, and it's going to keep going. It's a brand new startup, but we can see that we're delivering value and the clients are getting what they were promised. With the idea of making stories a really key part of being able to share what's important, I hear a couple of insights from the before and after that you shared the story with Dave. And one of them was a clear vision of what you want to become. One of the mistakes he made was not sharing that with anyone because I'm sure people would have looked at that and said, wait a second, this isn't who we are. What other insights can you gain to help people who are listening and thinking to themselves, I wonder what our story is? Because I know that anytime you get together a group of 10 managers, direct reports, there's going to be a lot of divergence as to what they think the mission, the values, and the strategy is for a company, even if it's written down, even if it's shared. The five corporate company uh, questions that you have, mission, vision, they have to be framed from the lens of transforming your customer. So ultimately, the only thing a business does, a product does, service does, is transform the customer. It's a transformation story from where they are today to where they want to go to. You, at that point in time, what's your role in this? That makes you the fairy godmother, the wise wizard that is going to grant them the magic amulet, the incantation to transform magically their lives from where they are today to where they want to be. That's the whole role. But the idea of the story is a transformation story that you're telling. What's really interesting about that is 
that many business leaders who grasp the idea of story put themselves in the position of the hero. They're the hero of the stories rather than what you're saying. You need to be the guide, the wizard, the person who creates the transformations. Who is the hero of the story? The hero of the story is always the customer. Always the customer. It's never not the customer. That is a very common mistake that we see is that we make it all about the business, all about the CEO or whatever it is. No one cares. People care about themselves and where their problems are and how to solve them, how to get to out of pain, get to gain. That's what it comes down to. In that one pager that Dave had put together, there was a clear transformation story in one of the paragraphs, what he was going to do for the client. He had completely abandoned that to the necessity of bringing cash in, which is never going to work for a sustainable business. So that transformation story is the one that you have to install and deliver on. So let's go through a couple quick examples. What's the transformation story of, say, Walt Disney World? Happiness. The happiest place on earth. It says it right there. Uh, You bring your family there, you are going to leave in a happier state than when you arrive. I can tell you when I went to Disneyland, way back when I was 15 or 14, whatever it was, I still remember it to this day because what a great experience that was. It was one of those things that there's a promise, but boy, did they deliver on that. What's the transformation promise of Tesla with Elon Musk? Elon Musk is very much about a cult of personality, but now he's bearing this torch of Tesla and SpaceX, and it is a forefront of innovation. And you're going to save the planet and the result, and you are going to be at the front of thought leadership and product leadership. You're going to be first in line for those kind of things. When the Tesla first came out, I think they brought out a Roadster for 100 Now the quest is, how do we get this to a $20,000 car, a $25,000 car that your daughter can afford to go to a university with? And it's those kinds of things. The very first time that the automotive industry has been transformed to this level of invention, because it's a whole different way to think about things. You are going to simplify the components of that car from thousands to maybe a couple dozen, but it is a drop, an absolute cliff level drop in the complexity of the vehicle. And now you're saving the planet as well. Because it's also a big supply chain store. You don't need nearly as many parts to build an electric vehicle as you do an internal combustion engine nor do you need anywhere near the type of maintenance that's required. Let's talk about another transformer. A guy named Jeff Bezos started this online bookstore and what was his promise and the growth of Amazon as a result of his... Jeff Bezos's promise at the very beginning, I don't know if he knew what it was. I remember reading about him thinking that wow, if they could afford a forklift to help move some of these pallets, that would be phenomenal. But he wanted to start that company he was already an investment banker at that point in time and he got some money to get and all this kind of stuff. What Amazon it is today is vastly different, I think, than what he thought it was going to be at the very beginning in the sense of just sheer gargantuan size. But if I take a look at the promises that he harped on while he was building the entity that it is today, and this is probably 15 years into it, 10 years into it, where Amazon is on its way to a multi-trillion dollar. It is about a singular fascination with customer experience an absolute singular fascination with that, and the broadest selection of anything and everything you could possibly want to buy. It permeates every aspect of your life. Like I've got Amazon Prime, I've got the Amazon Video, I've got Amazon a couple of different countries, depending on what I need to do. It is the bane of Main Street USA when it comes down to how do these small retailers now fight the Amazon juggernaut. And somebody's hitting on all cylinders when the US Congress is threatening Federal Trade Commission investigations and, and those 
those kinds of things. Now you've got something that has really taken. Microsoft had those things, right? We'd be remiss if we didn't talk about entertainment because stories are what drive entertainment. One of the messages that I, I got from reading your book was the genius of Star Trek. What was Gene Roddenberry's promise that was so broadly appealing? The biggest promise, I think, was this idea of diversity and the possibility of a world. You didn't even have to go into space, but he wanted to bring this idea of a world where you have all these different individuals and you had aliens, you had different races, and you had different cultures, and you had different, all these things. I believe he actually said this in a quote, if we couldn't do this kind of thing here on Earth, where all of these things could come together and live in a way that's cohesive and collaborative and cooperative, that we're working for each other, we don't deserve to go. Because you can't possibly imagine the diversity out there if we can't even handle the diversity here on planet Earth. I had the, the privilege of actually sitting down and talking with some of Gene Roddenberry's family. And one of the things that it was his wife, I think, who had said it, she said it was just very simple. He wrote stories that confirmed that we made it. I said, whoa, whoa, wait a second. <laughs> she goes, oh yeah, we just got over all the strife and the problems of the 60s and we just made it to space and we had overcome those. And he didn't know how we were going to overcome them. He just looked and cast his vision beyond the problems and imagined how these scenarios and technology would be available once we'd made it. It paints a picture of what the possibility is. In fact, if we talk about the transformation story, you have to show the end state, the culminating position that we will all be in once going to that movie, once going to space, buying this product, all these kind of things. The 60s were a great time for scientific invention. If you take a look, you know, between 1962 and 1969, they didn't even know how to put somebody on the moon in the way of the technology that was required, but they invented all of that in seven short years. That's the amazing part of the vision of that. Kennedy did that in 62. We kept repeating that mantra. They made it happen. And one of the things that many people in the scientific community will lament is that we've lost that initiative to do things simply to do them. NASA is not a for-profit agency. Never was. Kieran, are you ready for the, my quest for the best lightning round? I am ready for your lightning round. All right. At the beginning of the interview, we talked about Steve Jobs. Kurian, when you were a teenager, what's a song that you loved? Fleetwood Mac, <laughs> Don't Stop, believe it or not. In fact, I made our grad class use that as the graduation anthem because it spoke to me. Don't stop thinking about tomorrow. And it was all about possibility and potential. Your mission is to help people transform their businesses. How do you get the word out on a regular basis to keep meeting new leads and prospects whom you can help? Uh, I I blog regularly. I put out a quote of the week regularly. I comment on people's relevant posts regularly. It's constant promotion, almost exclusively on online channels. But ultimately, all of what I have to do has to be functionally relevant and emotionally significant. I just don't do it for fluff purposes. It's got to be something that I am putting forward that people can bite down on and get something Share an example so that people can hear a tangible way that something is both functionally relevant and emotionally significant. This is one of the ones that I got a lot of comments on. And uh, a lot of what I do with, with my startup clients is not work on their business, but I work on them, especially from a spiritual perspective. They're who they are, what they wanted to accomplish. A lot of them have lost that way. So one of the quotes I put up, it says simply, when people lose their way, it's almost always because they've lost their story. When they regain their 
their story, they will regain their way. It was thumbs up, like, sure. I knew I'd hit a chord at that point with that kind of. What would you say in the last six months or so has been the best $100 or so purchase you've made? This is going to sound very silly, but I bought a little cable management system for my table and such so that the cables just don't keep flopping around. It wasn't even 100 bucks. I think I bought a pack of them for 20 But it's about simplifying your life and organizing your life and make sure everything is in place. Every time you look at it, you just are relieved because it's not a rat's nest. You know what? I'll tell you, here's another one. Here's my microphone. That's about 129 bucks. But it completely improves how I come across on the audio quality of what I'm doing. Complete this prompt. I know I'm being successful when... I know I'm being successful when I can see other people transformed in the process. My success right now is very much rooted in my client success. It has to be, I think, just period. You can self-promote all you want, but unless you're transforming your clients, then you're not for long in this world, business-wise. Anyways, the moment that I actually see that happen is when they stop, then they pick up the phone and they write something down. Then I know that I hit a chord. What would you say has been the most important habit, belief, or routine that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? I've stopped throwing myself into the day when I wake up. If you had caught me a few years back, CNBC beyond, the stock market would be going, my laptop just flying away. I'm sending out emails. Before you've even stepped out of bed. I stepped out of bed, there's a coffee going and things like that, but I've stopped that now. So what I do right now, quite literally, in fact, I start my day every morning with 20 minutes of bliss. So I get into a bliss state and I repeat a mantra. I'm not thinking about anything going on on my laptop, on uh, the stock market. I could care less. I get myself into a bliss state to begin with, which is the opposite of throwing myself into the day. That's how I start every day now for the last couple of years. You sit quietly and you contemplate what mantra, what's the statement that you have on your mind to get yourself into that bliss state? A very simple one is bliss. I'll give you another one. It could be as simple as this as well. And that is love me, God, bless me, create through me. So create with me is intent. Create through me is surrender. The very first one is intent. The second one is surrender. And this idea that no matter what happens, I'm going to be okay. It's about knowing you're going to be okay. And you don't know that if you're just flailing around in all these types of things, trying to keep it on track. But you approach it with bliss and it's a completely different perspective when you look at those problems. You carve out and prioritize that part of your day the way that people who've listened to our interview have prioritized and spent time with us today talking about the seven essential stories that carry leaders tell. I want to thank you so much, Kieran, for sharing your wisdom, your experience, and your advice to help us elevate our stories and to make them a central part of how we use our narratives to gain new clients, to retain clients, and to bring more talent into our business. You talked about Steve Jobs and how he inspired you through his speeches and through the dynamic way that he created Apple and the other businesses that he was involved in. You talked about how it's important to make sure that you don't just rely on your own ideas, but like Eli Lilly created that whole online portal in order to bring in other people's ideas to help improve the company and incorporate that into your own story. You talked about Dave, a leader of a company who realized that he had lost his way, regained his focus, and built a company around the vision that he originally articulated, and now is able to serve people by focusing on the particular industries with the people who have the particular problems that he could best serve in order to make the big 
biggest difference. So it's all about transformation, using story to focus on helping others with their transformation so that you're the guy, they're the hero of the story. For these reasons and so many more, Kieran, I want to thank you for being on my quest for the best. Thank you for having me on your show, Bill. Kieran, before we say goodbye for now, where's a place that people could check out the work that you're doing online and maybe get a hit of the regular blog posts that you put out and quotes that you share. The easiest place to find me is on strategypeak.com as in mountain peak, all one word.com. In fact, if you come to the uh, right hand side there, you'll be able to download a, what is it? A couple of chapters of the book and the infographic will get you a lot just by. Kieran, we're going to link to strategypeak.com. We're going to link your social media. I know that you also mentioned that there's a special offer for people who listen to this episode that you want to make to them. Absolutely, Bill. In fact, for anybody that's listening to the show, if you tell me that you heard me on Bill's show, you have to do that. I'm going to send you a free Kindle copy of the book for the first five listeners that do. We're going to put all those details in the show notes to make it super easy for people to find you, what you're up to at Strategy Peak, and how you're evolving and continuing to help people use the power of stories and narrative in their lives and in their business. You quoted Victor Hugo in your book saying, there's one thing stronger than all the armies in the world, and that is an idea whose time has come. Kurian Therakin, author of The Seven Essential Stories Charismatic Leaders Tell, I want to thank you once again for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app, so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.